Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Some rest and relaxation this weekend for Mr. Roy Green as he takes some time off. He'll be back for you soon enough. Thank you for spending time here. Money on my mind. That is for sure. There's been an awful lot of money thrown around, and while we may agree or disagree with some of the decisions that have been made around COVID, there's one thing that everybody, I think, can agree on. It doesn't matter if you are of this stripe of that stripe. The question that comes is always, huh, who are we going to pay for this? My dad made the joke the other day. He says, well, the good news is this isn't my problem. My dad is in his 70s. And I joked as I sat next to my kids and I said, I have a sneaking suspicion this is also not going to be my problem. And I pointed at my children. And as funny as the joke is, it's really not very funny when we think about this could be a generational recovery financially in Canada. There was a stand-up that was presented by Pierre Polyev. And Pierre sat up and requested accountability. Now, Pierre is also the finance critic, so that's part of his gig. He's a member of Parliament. He joins us here on the program. Good day, sir. Good to be with you. Thanks for accepting the invitation to come and talk about this. I just really want to acknowledge, I think, the preparedness, the accuracy. It was extremely authentic as a person, not only as as an MP and the finance critic doing your job, Pierre, I think that when I saw your questions about the accountability and the money to do the audits, you also saw a Canadian in that. A Canadian who is no different in standing up and saying, okay, I get it. There's a lot going on here. I'm not being critical of that. I'm simply saying, how come we can't find out where it's going? Is that what your intention was? How did this all begin for you? Well, there's just this avalanche of government spending happening now. And uh, you were talking about who will pay for it, and you know, I have a 19-month-old uh, little girl, and uh, she'll be paying for it. And, uh, this incredible amount of debt we're accumulating uh, this year, the deficit will be probably 260 or $70 billion, uh, five times bigger than the previous record. Uh, the Bank of Canada has printed about $400 billion, the equivalent of one-fifth of our entire economy. Uh, in the last three months alone. And uh, what I want to do is make sure, at the very least, we need to know where that money is going. And the best way to find out is to have the Auditor General empowered to go in and conduct a complete, thorough audit and report back to Canadians. Uh, The government has been... The one thing that the government has not spent on is the Auditor, who's uh, about $11 million short of needed funding to conduct that review. And so I made it a mission to ensure that the Auditor General get that funding. You know, right now, the Government of Canada spends about $1 million a minute. That's the rate of federal spending. So in about 11 minutes, we could fully fund our Auditor General to make sure that our dollars are being wisely used. Well, and that was a remarkable stat, and I love how you broke it down to really, we're talking 11 minutes of sacrifice here in the grand scheme of how things are going. Now, since you started that, can you update the audience today of what has happened and where is the money and is it going to happen? So the government has agreed, uh, sorry, I should say all political parties voted on my motion at the Finance Committee to give the Auditor General all the funds her office is requesting to complete a review of the government's spending. So that is a very positive development. Uh, It means that members of all political parties 
showed up at the Finance Committee and voted in favour of that funding. Now, the government still has to allot and then transfer those funds over to the, to the auditor, but uh, it is an encouraging step forward that we did get the entire Finance Committee, all the members of Parliament who serve on it, to vote yes to giving that fund to the Auditor General. That's a good sign. There are some good things that have come out of this. I mean, I realize that we could probably spend days talking about agree or disagree on specific decisions, but there has been some great moments that have come out in this. Pierre, how long does it take now? I think of business. I'm a small business owner, so I think of business. So there's got to be some roll-up here because in this audit, it doesn't. it's not like $11 million means you've got a bunch of people on standby because you don't have the money to begin with. So in order to get timeline results... How long does it take us to find out now? Oh, I think it'll be at least a year to fully account for all of this. I mean, uh, the, the, the amount of government spending that has to be audited is staggering. Um, and so uh, yeah, you're quite right. There, the auditor will have to hire a number of professionals who do this for a living and have the skill set, bring them in, and then gain access to all the departmental documents and scan them, review them and uh, ultimately write a report uh, that is accurate and fact-checked. So it will be at least a year before we'll get any of the results of that audit. There was some questions that you raised about, you know, commitments to construction and infrastructure and different pieces of the puzzle that we're committed to over the course of time. Is that going to come out of this too, or is there some sort of purview that's just specifically COVID spending? No, there. in fact, Parliament has tasked the, gover- tasked the Auditor General to look into a number of things. One of them is the COVID spending. Um, and the, the second task we have voted to give the Auditor General in a motion, again, another conservative motion, was to look at the government's $180 billion infrastructure plan. The reason we're suspicious about that spending is because the another uh, uh, financial watchdog, the parliamentary budget officer, said he asked for a list of all the projects that the government has built with this money. Uh, And the government says there have been 52,000 projects, but the list only shows 30,000 projects. We have about 20,000 projects that are not on any list that we don't know where they were built, what was built, how much each of them cost. It's just we don't have we don't know. Uh, In fact, the list the government has of its infrastructure projects only account for half of the money that has been spent. So it'd be like if you came back from the grocery store and you had a $500 total at the bottom of your receipt, but the items on the receipt only added up to, say, $250. Your wife would say, well, where's the other $250? You right. says here you spent $500. I have an itemized receipt for $250. There's $250 missing dollars. Well, that's the, where we're at with our infrastructure program right now. And so that's why uh, our, par- our, our the Parliament has asked the Auditor General, go find where this money went. Hmm. You, you always have such a calm demeanor in your presentation. I mean, your, your, your personal history sort of spans across the country in a lot of different ways. And yet um, you have this calm demeanor and you do speak to accuracy in this, which I appreciate. But at some point, Pierre, there's got to be a point where your, your head hits the desk and there's one trigger thing that makes you go, oh, man. Like, how, how do you manage that? And what, what really, you know, as, as an MP... And maybe as a Canadian, what's the piece that gets you? Well, I, you know, it does get frustrating when they won't answer basic questions. Mm, you know, that's what gets um, me. I, and, you know, I try to ask simple, clear, factual questions and avoid rhetorical attacks in the question. Just simply ask for numbers, dates, times, yes, no. And very rarely do answers come from those questions. So it does get frustrating. But, you know, I'm reminded that a non-answer is an answer. It is. And uh, eventually, if you keep asking the question, keep filing the order paper and access to information requests that produce government documents, eventually you will get at the truth. And when that happens, accountability will be served. How, how shocked would Canadians be if the yes or no question was actually answered yes or no? I think it would almost be refreshing. I can handle it in government that, and there's, I disagree with all kinds of parties and their things they do, but the reality is, is I would be mind blown. I could handle as a Canadian the answer that I disagree with being clear and concise versus the non-answer of the dodge the question and change the subject. Is that something that you see with Canadians? 
Well, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. In fact, the other acceptable answer would be, I don't know, but I'll look into it and get back to you. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that, that would be an honest answer. We can't expect ministers to know 100% of the details of their department. If right. they just said, I don't know, half the time, they get more respect than these uh, ignoring the question and, and rambling on about some unrelated point. Right. Um, but I, I do think that's the power of Parliament. It is an accountability machine. I've always believed that the way our system works is that it should make the most powerful people in the country tremble every day they walk into that place. Yeah. It should be a place where the mighty are made low, and that, that's what we, we try to do in opposition, and uh, it's the standard I hope we can live up to when we're, eventually we're, we're back in government. Well, you know, that's a whole other conversation for another day. Um, but the it, it is a hall of integrity. And our political system, while I'm not an expert by any means, but the reality is our political system is designed to maintain checks and balances and integrity. And call it a hall of integrity, if you will. Yet we have individuals that walk into that and aren't even willing to stand in their own integrity, let alone their party's integrity, let alone respect the integrity of the hall. And that's the part that drives me nuts. It seems reckless and it seems careless. And I appreciate uh, you taking a stand um, for that one. So we're looking at a long time before any of this on, you know, comes through. As the things start, what do you do in your job, Pierre? Do you take, if, if the Auditor General starts rolling with this, do you start to update as the finance critic that information? I don't even know how that process would go. No, the Auditor General uh, keeps cards very close to chest. Uh, they, the office goes in and just scours through all the documents and they chase down every penny and they go and interview and interrogate officials and politicians, and then they bundle it into a report, and then they actually give it to the government and say, did I get anything wrong here? Can you prove that I've mistaken, I've made any mistakes? And then they go back and forth some more, and then only then, after all that, does the Auditor General walk to Parliament and table that report, and then boom, it just becomes open, and everyone sees all of the product of that work. And that's how we learned about the this, the famous sponsorship scandal of right. uh, 15 years ago where yep. uh, the Liberal Party had taken all that money or or the fact that the gun registry was a thousand times over budget. And, um, it's all been through that very vigorous, uh, meticulous work of auditors general gone by, and that's what we are hoping to get out of this research as well. It's a good sign and also a hurry up and wait. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, uh, nothing happens quickly in government. But, uh, you know, we, we'll, we'll keep pressing, and uh, I think that we will get at the answers. I'm hoping that we can get those answers before there's an election. I, I think it would be uh, outrageous if the Prime Minister tried to force an election before the Auditor General comes back, because uh, to avoid having voters know what uh, is in the report when they cast their ballots. Yeah. But um, that's why we're pressing to get this, the wheels turning now so that we can get a result uh, before the election, and let Canadians decide uh, if they how they think the government is performed. Pierre Polyevre is uh, MP and finance critic, uh, conservative MP and finance finance critic. Thank you so much for the time, sir. I appreciate the uh, the directness of this conversation and the stand for the money. Thank you. Great to be with you. I was joking with the production crew here that it's possible because you're such a friend of the program that I might be your guest on the program. Uh, and not the way around. So I appreciate you sharing time with the new guy, just filling in for the weekend. All good. Happy to chat. If anyone wants to talk health, medicine, science, I'm all. I've got all uh, nothing but time. Nice. I picture the uh, the the geeky uh, emoji with the glasses as you say that, um, embracing the inner geek. Persona, that's basically me. We geeky would all and, well, be better not emoji, off. But definitely geeky. <laughs> we would all be better off if we just embraced our inner geek. I think that would be. That would be wonderful because, you know, we all carry that inside us. All right. So, uh, Dr. Isaac, here we are uh, talking about some of the um, some of the different things going on with COVID. A infectious disease specialist is your jam, University of Health Network in Toronto. And we're seeing some stats and stuff start to shift in some ways, but not in others. And I'm hoping you can help me with a little bit of clarity. Population-wise in Canada, the United States, it's 10 to 1 is basically it. It's, a, it's not quite that, but it's a nice easy number. What we're seeing when it comes to stats around COVID is a 20 to 1 scenario with America versus Canada. So it's been bigger. It's been a bigger problem down there. But the 20 to 1 part of this really hasn't changed 
in the stats, yet we're seeing some spikes in some places and not others. What's happening? I mean, in general, I mean, just stating the obvious, we are doing way better than our friends to the south, like way better. And that's reflective of much better policy, much better adherence to this policy. And, and you know, even taking a step back too, just basically taking it seriously and, and appreciating the real risk. Now, I get it. Canada wasn't perfect. There are definitely uh, problems with how the epidemic response was run. I mean, we know about the long-term care facility disaster and, and issues with diagnostic testing. By all means, we've definitely had hurdles along the way, and, and we'll do our own soul-searching about how we can improve on that. But if we just look at what we're doing compared to what they're doing, we have done a much, we are far better prepared and have done a much better job. Quick recovery on some of the, you know, the PPE stats and those things seem to be a, a good one. When Canada realized, whoa, we do not have enough stuff. Some of those decisions were made very quickly, unlike some other places in the world, notably down in the States. Do you think that, because now we're not seeing this sort of influx that we suspected, at least currently, inside hospitals, um, there seems to be an awful lot of preparedness, then not turnaround. I'm going to get to that part in just a second, but maybe in the big picture, that's probably was long overdue and a political conversation that we don't need to get into for years and years and years now. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, I mean, I think we took it seriously. Our healthcare system is better prepared at dealing with all Canadians rather than just some Canadians. And I get it. We're not perfect. But compared to the states, we have a much better system of acute care uh, for that, that, that really provides access to care to all Canadians rather than just some Canadians. Um, and of course, it can be improved. Our public health system is far more robust compared to the United States as well. And then I just think that our leadership in general took it more seriously. I mean, you're watching places in the southern United States right now uh, essentially start to implode. I mean, you've got these southern states, Arizona, Florida, Texas, uh, Georgia. There are a tremendous number of new cases week after week, about anywhere from a 30 to 40 percent rise in cases in these states. And there's about 20 states now that are showing a rise in cases. Arizona, for example, is already starting to meet its ICU capacity. This is uh, a recipe for disaster. And I re- they're starting to clamp back down again there. But I mean, it's going to be hard. It's going to be very hard to do. So I hope they can rein it in. I really do. Um, what does that mean for us in Canada? I mean, if we can, I, I appreciate that there's a lot that goes into the border and it, there's a lot more than, than COVID-19. I get that there's economics and politics and all this other stuff, but I think we've done so much good work here in Canada. If we can keep that border closed or tightly controlled, at least for the foreseeable future, we'll do ourselves a good job, a good deed from a health standpoint and an economic standpoint, because we have the potential to undo all of this hard work if we start letting uh, having free flow of people across that border. Just, it, it's really, it's not a good sight down there right now. No, and we, you know, we had some guests on about, uh, earlier on, about family and couples and all the different things around that. I, I use the phrase recreational travel, and later in the program, we're actually going to talk about recreational travel. It seems to me that we're going to be opening up our travel to Europe sooner than we will be to the States, and I, I'm only speculating, I have no evidence to back this up, but I would imagine that we're looking at a long-term recreation travel not going to happen uh, down yeah. south, and that would be a big impact on sports too, uh, for sure. Now we are starting to see those spikes. Do they have any indication what those spikes are in the Arizonas and the Texas? And are we seeing those same spikes in Canada anywhere? So the spikes in the states, you know, there's been some debate whether or not those are, you know, is that a second wave? Is this a spike in the first wave? And I said all along, I think it's totally irrelevant. Who cares? A spike in cases is a spike in cases. It means you need to enact and implement good policy to prevent people from getting infected, to prevent your healthcare system from getting overwhelmed. And to, I really think healthy people drives that, that drives a healthy economy. So I think there's economic benefits for this as well. Um, spikes in Canada, you know, we really haven't seen that to such an extent. And you know, it's really interesting now that the burden in Canada is so low, even in the hardest hit parts, uh, greater Toronto area, area around Montreal, we're seeing a wonderful trend towards fewer and fewer cases in those areas as well. But what we're now going to see, and and spoiler alert, we're just going to get used to it for the foreseeable futures, 
we're going to see little outbreaks of this now and again. We had this outbreak in uh, New Brunswick, for example. There was an outbreak in British Columbia in a frozen fruit factory. There was uh, some meatpacking plants. We've seen outbreaks in, um, in migrant farm workers. This is the nature of the disease. It's, it's, it's sporadic. Uh, and, uh, and we will see these, what we call super spreading events where one infected person really affects, you know, anywhere from 10 to 30 other people. And the key thing here is now, do we have the capacity to rapidly identify those rapidly conduct contact tracing, support people through a 14 day period of isolation if they're infected or a close contact and essentially prevent those small outbreaks from growing into a much larger outbreak in the second wave. Things are so different, Isaac, where they're opening up. It depends on where you are. Yesterday, uh, I do the show from Calgary, drove out to Banff. Banff has made some big changes in the way that, because now they're open, you can go into the parks again. And, you know, they've taken and basically closed down Main Street to, to vehicle traffic, and now it's wide open pedestrian traffic. It is incredibly different. It is, the perception of it is incredibly different. And I find that people are so anxious. I had to go to Ikea, and they Ikea queues you before you go in, at least here. And then you walk through, and they space you out, and they monitor and ask you to keep space and all the things. Yet everybody was so excited. It was like Ikea was the best afternoon date ever because we're out of the house. Um, is that going to be dangerous for us? Are you finding the same thing in and around Toronto, that people are just so excited to get out? Well, before we get to there, two points. Number one, I'm from Calgary originally, and I miss Banff, so I'm extremely jealous of you. Nice. Number two, IKEA is the best date ever. At least I've been relying on that, and we'll see how that works out. <laughs> That's your move. My wife. Oh, there and you go. Number three, what? Go ahead. That's your move. That's your move. That's the big move oh, right there, Doctor Isaac's move. Oh man. Uh, yeah, I guess it worked so far. At least my wife hasn't complained. But anyway, number three is the, uh, yeah, I mean, we have to be careful. We clearly have to be careful, even with the best laid plans, even with physical distancing, hand hygiene, even with businesses really ensuring that they limit the number of people in at one time, that, you know, they're trying to make it a safe experience. Of course, we're going to let our guard down sometimes. Of course, there's going to be slip ups. Um, and we just have to expect that there's going to be outbreaks from time to time. We hear about schools reopening and, and businesses reopening, and it's a slow, gradual reopening. Even the best laid plans can, can be scuttled. And that's not a failure necessarily of policy. That's because we're dealing with an infection that's very transmissible uh, and and until we have a vaccine, until we have a durable solution out of the mess that we're in right now, we can expect to see periodic outbreaks from time to time. And that's just, that's it. it's tough. It's tough to say because we love living in black and white situations and we love certainty and we are certainly living in uncertain times. You just never know who may have this. And, uh, and the best thing you can do to protect yourself is stay two meters apart, wash your hands, and, uh, and and hopefully people around you are doing the same thing. If you're in a place where you can't practice physical distancing, put on a mask. And, you know, for the vast majority of times, that's going to be totally reasonable and safe. I call it bingo. It's like bingo. Um, you never really know if your number is going to come up. And the guy sitting next to you, the number could come up. And then for you, it doesn't. I have a friend of mine who I spend a lot of time with. Uh, we did work together, not here at the radio station, and we social distanced. We did all the appropriate things, but we did not wear masks. We had spent some time together, and he was actually in the car in front of me in the COVID line getting tests done. And we went in, we got our tests done, he's positive, I'm negative. Is that the bingo, or is that inconsistent testing? Or how, like, He was asymptomatic, by the way, and and he never did get symptoms. So how how is that? Um, a thing, is it really that much like bingo? Uh, to some extent. Yeah, you can always, at least you can take some actions and some accountability and, and put that into your own hands. And, you know, I'm not saying your friend did anything wrong. There's certain things that are beyond uh, your control, uh, you know, but you can have situational awareness and say, you know what, if you're in the grocery store, there's a bunch of people in one aisle. You can say, you know what, I'm just I'm not going to go down that aisle. I'm going to go, I'll come back and and go down there in a bit when things clear out. So we have to have a lot of situational awareness, but uh, there probably is an element of, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, but, but I still think we can take 
uh, some control over the situation. Yeah. And that doesn't mean, you know, not leaving our house until 2021. Oh, dear. Uh, but but it, it might mean just have, having more situation, more situational awareness, uh, more adherence to hand hygiene, more adherence to physical distancing, having a mask in the glove box if you if you need it, if you're going in to go someplace. It's, they're really simple things that, that that just happen to work. They just happen to work well. Well, I would just also add to that thing that his kids did not uh, test positive, and neither did his wife, and him and his wife sleep in the same bed. And so, huh. I mean, that does raise the question that, okay, yeah. so he's being responsible in his hand washing, so is his family, all of those things, touching the face yeah. and all of that stuff. Clearly, they don't wear masks around the house. Um, huh. I did see a lady driving down the road with a face shield on. She was the only one in the car. I found that somewhat entertaining but to their own (laughs) well hey she felt safe i guess i felt not safe get you out of the house if that's what gets out of the house by all means is it protecting her or anyone else nope nope that's what it takes to get out of the house to get the groceries (laughs) put on a face shield no big deal it's not hurting anyone put on a hockey helmet with a friend had a false positive right yeah well a false positive test and it's not that hard there's protocols to deal with false positive tests they're actually not all that common. It's the false negatives that concern me a bit more, but certainly there happens to be a false positive every once in a while. And what people can do is they can, uh, you know, your test is positive. You just have to assume and during the course of a pandemic, you have to assume that if your test is positive, you're positive and you gotta, you gotta isolate. But many places might give you the option of saying, okay, you know what? You have zero symptoms whatsoever. No one around you is affected whatsoever. Why don't you come back for a retest? And if you test negative, uh, a second time, and sometimes they'll even do two negative tests within about a 24-hour period. So if you have two negative tests within a 24-hour period, you, you don't have COVID-19. So some places are, are offering uh, are offering that. Not everywhere, just due to lab capacity. But this guy might buy himself a get-out-of-quarantine card if he had two negative tests within a 24-hour period of time. And then that initial test would be considered a false positive test. Yeah, and he's he's all free and clear now, so he's gotten the all good to get back to life. But the um the the thing that that brings up for me is two questions. Then, so uh, has testing accuracy improved yet? Uh, because that could be what that could be the tests, that could be contamination, plus it could be the mechanism and method. So has that improved? And is false positives or negatives still an important thing? And then I have another question to follow up. Sure. So false positives are still tend to be really rare. When you do have a false positive, it's usually something that happens in the laboratory. Uh, and again, it, it just doesn't seem to be that common at all. False negatives are interesting. False negatives are much more common. You can get false negative tests for two reasons. Number one, um, you're not doing the test right. Uh, there's different ways to do these tests, but a lot of them involve sticking a swab in the nose. And sometimes for people who have had it, it goes pretty far back. Yep. So if you don't get a good sample, if the swab doesn't go all the way back, if it's not, if you don't collect a good sample, you're just not going to have any virus on that sample. And there's no way, even if the lab is the best lab in the world, if they don't get a good sample, they can't do the test right. So that's one way you get a false negative. The other way you get a false negative is early, early on in the course of infection, within the first day or two, the probability of having a false negative test is a little bit higher. So you'll hear a stat saying up to 20% of the tests can be negative a false negative test in the first day of the illness, that's probably a bit high. That's from a modeling study that got a lot of press. Uh, It's still true in the sense that you can have a false negative test and the likelihood is a little higher early, like very early on in the course of an infection. So if people are having compatible signs and symptoms of COVID-19 and they have a a negative test that doesn't necessarily rule out COVID-19, we can still say, you know what? go isolate for 14 days. The other thing you can do is just repeat the test. Uh, And oftentimes, if you repeat the test in 24 hours or 48 hours, it'll be positive for that. But I think the other thing to remember, too, is, yes, I get it. We are in the middle of a pandemic with COVID-19. But there's also about 8 trillion other things that can cause fever, cough, shortness of breath, muscle aches and pains, chills. I mean, and and as a frontline healthcare provider, we have to be open-minded to those and be a good doctor. And, you know, some people won't have COVID-19. And we have to certainly consider other diagnoses as well. Yeah, because those things are still happening. So here, this could be a conspiracy question that I'm realizing that as I'm going over it in my head. <laughs> but it may, if it is, you can call me out. It's fine. But so if sure. we don't have... We don't have a vaccine at this point. And then if COVID was such a COVID-19 was such a surprise on us that we didn't know that it was coming 
And so how is it we're able to test so quickly? Oh, easy. So it was really helpful very, very early on in the course of the epidemic. Uh, Chinese scientists did what's called uh, sequencing. And they basically can do a, a study that looks at what's the genetic sequence of the virus. And I know how there's been a lot of chatter about, you know, what did China know? When did they know it? We have to remember China's a huge place, but 1.2 billion people. So it's hard to make blanket statements over 1.2 billion people. There's been some wonderful science that came out of China and some wonderful transparency that's come out of China. In fact, these Chinese scientists sequenced the COVID-19 genome and shared it with the world. And it was something like 11 days after we even knew this virus existed. And based on that early data sharing, other parts of the world said, oh, thanks, we're going to make diagnostic tests. And they did. Hmm. And they worked. And the genome's been sequenced multiple times now since it's spread to many different parts of the world. And, 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 but like that original data sharing that was happened so quickly after was one of the drivers to develop these diagnostic tests. So, you know, I get it. There, there, there's questions should and will continue to be asked about, you know, who knew what and when did they know and all this other jazz. But um, again, there, there was some very there's some very good scientists in China and, and, and there was some terrific data sharing and transparency early on uh, that might not be reflective of the entire you know, course of the epidemic. But certainly that that was very helpful for uh, to develop early diagnostic testing. Well, I think you've answered my question, which was the next uh, quick piece here was the uh, so many uh, pieces have been written about stop talking about culling off my generation like we don't matter. Um, but it sounds like that responsibility piece. And I mean, they get to choose if they're going to be out and about or not. They get to choose if they go to Costco or Ikea. Maybe they've got a, a hot old person date to, to Ikea scheduled for today. Um, well, you never know. Um, yeah. And so maybe that's one of those things. I mean, seeing uh, some of the older folks out and about who still contribute so much to our community and our living would be, um, it'd be a real crime to not see those people out and about. So regardless of this theory or that theory, it seems to me to... Practice a little bit of responsibility in, in your wa- hand washing and the way you, who you hug, if you're going to hug anybody, um, and just be a little bit responsible. And then that whole culling, if you will, recklessness sort of just magically disappears. So I think you answered that for me. Thank you. Um, yeah, no problem. I, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I, I was just going to say thank you. So you go ahead. Oh, I was, I was going to say, I agree with you. Like, at the end of the day, we now, we have, we know, we obviously don't know everything, but we certainly have a lot of the answers, not all of them. And of course, we know that people over the age of 60 are more likely to have a, a worse outcome if they get this infected. We know how to prevent it. Physical distancing, hand hygiene, uh, you know, wearing a mask if, if you're in a setting where you can't practice physical distancing. Like, these are very fundamental principles. But of course, everybody's different. Everyone has their own risk perception, risk thresholds, risk tolerances. And some people who are, for example, over the age of 60 will say, you know what, I'm, I'm fine going out. I'm fine going to the grocery store. I'll put on a mask. I'll spread apart. I'm not going to go to a crowded place and they'll go about their day. And that's that. Other yeah. people might say, you know what, it's not for me. I'm not going to visit. I'm, I'm going to stay home. I'm going to have other people bring me groceries. I think that's okay, too. As long as people are making informed decisions, uh, I have no problem with that, whatever people decide, as long as they're well-informed. And as you point out, there's a lot of conspiracy theories. There's a lot of misinformation floating around. And there's still some good places to get quality information. If people just use quality information to make informed decisions, then you can't go wrong. Yeah. And don't stop asking questions because that's how we really learn from all this is to keep asking questions. Thank you so much. I appreciate it uh, very much for uh, sharing the conversation and letting me be part of your show today. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, (laughs) uh, he's regular here on Roy Green Show. Thank you, sir. And you have a wonderful day. And next time I go to Banff, I'll think of you. Be well. Have a great afternoon. very easy for us to blame things on certain things, but there's one undeniable piece here. It's possible that we are expecting too much of police officers, human beings that are committed to protecting society. And I'm, I, I want to be very clear in our conversation here that I'm a big fan of the police. I am. I do not understand the defund the police. I do understand changing the conversation. I do understand making sure the right people are in the right position to do the job that needs to be done. It just has to be that way because too many people are getting hurt and too many good cops are being put into bad situations and too many bad cops are being kept around too long. I have friends who are police officers, full disclosure, very good human beings. 
So the reality is, is the conversation absolutely needs to be done differently. And that's why we've brought on our next guest, Asante Houghton, joins us on the phone, mental health and equity advocate to have this conversation. There's got to be a better way when Canadians are calling for help and welfare checks and you want to be able to trust that you're the person that said, my friend could be in trouble. Will you please check on them? We can't seem to figure it out. And the police go and somebody ends up dead. Living with that burden for the rest of your life, I can only imagine there was a story out of the States about a neighbor that the door was open at the neighbor's house. They were worried about their neighbor. Police show up, somebody moves inside, somebody gets shot. Left the door open playing video games. I do believe in the humanity of people. I really, really do. But I also believe that we got to make sure we have the right people doing the right things. Asante, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it, Shane. How are you doing today? Uh, today is a good day. It's It feels, for the first time, Asante, like a weekend, as opposed to if you had asked me that a week or so ago, I probably would have said I couldn't tell you what day of the week it is. It's been a heavy time. It is a hard time. Long, I think. It is. And when you take the fact that we are in the situations that we are in health-wise, and we start to put in some extremely heavy, albeit overdue, conversation, um, it's not easy for anybody to talk about it's necessary. I kind of wish the timing was different, but I also sort of wish the timing was many years ago. How do you feel? Um, I would agree with that. You know, um, you know, as as a black person and as someone whose entire family has uh, dealt with mental health challenges uh, essentially throughout my entire life, um, and I'm in my 30s now. Um, you know, I have seen uh, the impact of the the very things that we're talking about. Um, you know, and uh, I very much agree with you in the sense that um, perhaps we have the wrong people showing up at the door when we're making a wellness check or, or um, you know, making a mental health call. There are the pieces of this where people are saying, like, the defund the police and all these things, and I, I just can't even imagine that. I mean, I, to me, it's absurd to say we should defund something, but by the way, you got to spend $80 million on body cameras, and we're going to take your money away. This sounds like there's a piece of this puzzle that the wrong people are in the wrong job. And I would like to give the credit to that. I would like to give the credit to all the people that have been asked by their employers in life to do something that they're not prepared for, to do something that they're not trained on because it happens in all jobs so how do you see it as as a stand that you've taken to share with everybody today about mental health and equity and all these pieces can we have that conversation without forgetting how important it is i think you know it, it's a really complicated conversation and it's definitely one that is emotionally charged uh for a lot of people regardless of where you sit and and what your opinion is and what your position is um, from where I'm standing, uh, I definitely believe that, um, you know, I know there are a lot of folks who think um, we should give the police better training or more training. And then, you know, uh, a friend and I, we've been looking at a lot of the numbers and uh, the amount of mental health calls that are happening in Toronto, where I live, is 40 times larger than, you know, calls for uh violent crimes or you know violence is happening or that sort of thing um which is to say that there is a, a huge need um for individuals who are designated to respond just to mental health calls right um and i imagine that you know putting myself in the shoes of a police officer um who has you know every time you get called out to something you don't know what's going to happen to you right um, so you already have that adrenaline and fear and all these things happening for you as, as an individual walking into a situation that, you know, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. And then perhaps you run into a, a situation or you, you enter a situation and maybe you're uh, encountering someone who is experiencing different mental health challenges, maybe things that, you know, you as a police officer aren't trained for, are not used to, um, and that can escalate in ways that, can be tragic as you know we have seen in the past um then on the flip side i think about myself as an individual going through a mental health challenge or a caregiver of someone going through a mental health challenge and how much better the experience might be not, not just in terms of not just in terms of you know survival uh but in terms of getting the right care if it was a mental health worker or a mental health team showing up at my door um and you know being able to de-escalate 
and being able to understand better, you know, what my symptoms, how I'm presenting, um, what that may be. Um, maybe being able to see that um, the way I might be presenting is something that is not not necessarily needs to be perceived as dangerous or different or anything that might set somebody off who does not have the experience of uh, working with folks with mental health challenges. Yeah, well, you know what? Um, it comes for me. You know that I've been, I want to get it into a specific example, and this is where it lands for me, is that I think of somebody who's manic. Right. Uh I think I don't think of the drunk guy. I don't think of the high guy. I don't. I really think of somebody who's manic, somebody like uh, only because the experience through extended family and friends has been around bipolar disorder. I think about that person whose medication has either, you know, gone awry or become not a thing and they've slipped into a manic state. That's who I think of becomes the person where erratic behavior is so unpredictable it's got to be difficult for police to deal with so with your history what you've been around with mental health is it similar or is there a different sort of example specifically that you think of where someone's behavior might be different or difficult to interpret you know i think that's a great question when we talk about mania for instance just by virtue of my own experience as a professional and in my personal life um i'm able to nail that down within five seconds like that's what's happening with this person um you know you might think about other things like delusions or hallucinations someone is hearing things or talking to people who you know we can't perceive as being there um getting messages from uh god or someone else in their head and expressing those things outward and we're thinking that's weird or that's strange um i imagine you know what happens sometimes with folks like that is when we try to rationalize with them it can make them more upset or or we become frustrated or upset because we're trying to rationalize and we're not getting anywhere. Now, if, if I have the ability to recognize what is happening for that person, I can work with them rather than, you know, going off, veering off in a direction that is not helpful for me, myself, uh, the presenting officer in this case, or for that person who's experiencing the mental health challenges or their family, caregiver, et cetera. I hear that there are three people in this conversation. We talk about the mental health of the person here. We talk about the bipolar, you know, patient, if you will. But we don't talk about so much the mental health of the police officer and the things that they're going through in their day. I mean, this is a person who most likely left a loved one and said, you know, be safe tonight. And they're going through their own life and their own experience and what they're doing. Plus, there's the person on the sideline who called for help. So it's like there are three people here and we're not talking about the mental health of all three people, are we missing an opportunity to go all the way? You know, I think that's a great question, and it's something that uh, you know some friends, uh, friends of mine, you know, we always debate about that particular thing. Um, you know, sometimes it gets heated because you know uh, we we want to you know place blame in different places. But for me, I think it's important to recognize um, you know the mental health of all three people in that situation. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a person experiencing uh, the mental health challenge, um, you know, when if, if police arrive, maybe that person has had negative uh, interactions with police before, whether it's because of mental health or race, if we're talking about that right now. Um, there's a police officer who, I mean, if we really look into it, a lot of police officers are affected by things like PTSD, um, and that's not something that is really well talked about. Um, and then, yeah, of course, we look at the, the person who's making the call, who's typically a loved one, whether it's, you know, a romantic partner, family member, friend, et cetera. And that person is typically going through it, too, you know, especially if it's someone who lives with the person with the mental health challenge, because, you know, they are essentially, uh, you know, having to watch someone that they love suffer, which, as we all know, is really challenging. So it's important, I think, to talk about the mental health of everybody in this situation. Mental health, I think, we should be talking about for everybody, period, point blank. Um, so uh, for me, yeah, you know, oftentimes we focus just on the person with the mental health challenge or, you know, recently we're talking about the behavior of police officers. It's important to, I think, really think about the situation and, and the many, many different layers that exist in situations like these. Well, and we also can't forget, and I think this is so incredibly important, that while we talk about stories about DeAndre Campbell and his family and all the things that have gone on, you know, we have to talk about that. 
it has to be part of the conversation. But I think that we also forget about the other people that the welfare checks have worked out. They've worked out where the person was okay, and the police did what they were going to do. And the other welfare checks where they got there, and the person was not okay, and it worked out. Do we do them all a disservice when we only lean on one and not all of them? Because your perspective, if I understand it correctly, is both. The race part, which is a big part, but there's also the mental health part. And do we do a disservice to one or the other when we don't talk about them all? Uh, Yeah, I I would say definitely. Um, You know, for me, uh, just my experience as a black person is, you know, I've had a lot of negative interactions with police for various different reasons. Right. Um, and, you know, perhaps, you know, let's back it up a bit for me is, is that, you know, I want to talk about something called implicit bias, which is essentially an opinion that we don't know we have that affects our behavior. Yeah, right? It's very similar and, to unconscious bias, by the way, for people who have heard that phrase. That's it. You know, I mean, they're interchangeable if we really want to be colloquial about it, but, um, so if, if I'm a police officer and I've worked, you know, regardless of how we've gotten to these situations, um, which is to say that sometimes, you know, systemic issues like racism, et cetera, et cetera, might lead to certain communities being certain positions. I'm an officer. I work in a particular community, particular area, and I'm seeing, you know, a particular group, uh, you know, I'm responding to calls, et cetera, et cetera, in this community. Um, so I start to develop an implicit bias, which is maybe, or uh, unconscious bias, which is may- maybe also fed by media images, mm-hmm. uh, maybe stereotypes that I've learned from other people, et cetera. And so now I walk into a situation and I'm not reading it um, particularly, you know, through a lens that is 100% clear, mm-hmm. right? And then if I'm the other person now, say I'm the, you know, DeAndre Campbell making the call, and I've had negative interactions with the police before. My lens is also a little bit different in terms of how, you know, that interaction is going to go down. And I might be fearful. And that just being fearful in itself leads to various different reactions, which may not be helpful um, in the situation. So if you have everyone being fearful in a situation, things can escalate really quickly. So I think it's important that we do talk about the mental health aspect, but also talk about um, you know, the race aspect and, you know, how we arrive at some of the ideas that we might have about different groups of people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right now, as a black person, I'm talking about, you know, my experience as a black person. But what we've heard recently in the media here in Canada is also um, Indigenous and First Nations leaders um, like the that um, the Chief man Allen. in Alberta. Yeah, and Chief then, Allen. You know, there was something that in New Brunswick, I think, yesterday. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing conversation. It's so incredibly important. And, and I think that once we accept the fact that the bias is going to be there. So it goes as far as in a broken home where the husband does not trust the wife and the, the mom says to the kids, don't trust men. Listen, daughter, don't trust men. You can't trust men. That plants the bias that ends up being there. And not only that, who's that man? Well, that's Steve. Okay, Steve's a jerk. So now we carry Steve's are jerks. And we joke about that in real life. And not only that, Steve can be a white guy, he can be a black guy, he can be anybody. But we often carry the bias of what Steve looks like forward with us. Once we accept that it's there, then we can start to look at our conditioning as we dig into deeper the pieces of the puzzle that start to lead us into a path. It becomes autopilot and it's going to happen. That's what we do as humans. But we have to just accept it and be open-minded to the people around us that it's going on and just... A friend of mine, Jody Carrington, she's a psychologist. She says, name it, tame it. And yeah, it's, 100%. and that's where the conversation has to start. Um, thank you so much for this chat today, Asante. I appreciate you coming on. Um, this is what honest conversation sounds like. It's not very scary when you dig into it. And I thank you for sharing it with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. We just got to keep talking and, you know, keep working on the biases when we learn what they are. Yeah, and you know what? I'm going to uh, I'm going to stand by a commitment that I've made in general, Asante, is that I don't I have some scheduled time to fill into this program this summer, and it doesn't have to be this program. But one of the things that I've said is a real crime is if we 30 days from now we're not talking about it. So I'm going to commit now, and we're going to do some information exchange later, and um, we will have this conversation. It might not be 30 days, but on one of these programs, in order to make sure it stays going, and that's going to be my commitment to you today. So please join me down the road, okay? Love it. Thank you. We're going to talk about seeing family, especially when family is not on this side of the 49th parallel.
We're going to talk about all these things. There are some astounding things that were said this week that blew my mind a little bit. The conversation around travel was addressed by the Prime Minister. Justin Trudeau announced this week that the border would remain closed until at least the end of July. Which doesn't surprise me as we see statistically some of the stats in the states actually going up and not coming down. Some of the provinces starting to see some bumps in COVID numbers. Other provinces seeing them go down. And regardless of where you are in the country, it's different. It's different where things reopen here and things reopen there. Here in Western Canada, yesterday I went to Banff. Because you can do that. It's just a little drive down the road, about an hour away. And it's no problem. They're open for business. Not a lot open, but they're open. And one of the cool things they've done there in a very touristy location is they've actually closed the main street, blocked it off, so the sidewalks wouldn't be so crowded. So things are different wherever you go. The experience is different with whatever you see. And travel is starting to become maybe a possibility. The question about how far can you go into province? You see, the thing about traveling is that you can't really drive across the border from Ottawa into Holland into Quebec. But you can hop a flight from the Ottawa airport to the Montreal airport. No problem. So things have not been figured out at all. But things are changing and something to look forward to. For example, different airlines doing different things. But some things will stay closed. It was the right thing to further extend by 30 days our closure of the Canada-US border to travelers other than uh, essential services and goods. So what does that mean? The Prime Minister said that. And there have been so many people that have dealt with so many family issues across a closed border. It's been hard. Our first guest on the program today is Dr. David Edward Uipun. Now, he's co-founder of a Facebook group called Advocacy for Family Reunification at the Canadian Border. He's a doctor in Canada. His common-law partner, Alexandria, is a nurse in Ireland. Now, his personal story we will dig into. It's unbelievable. But what he's learned so far, and I look forward to David sharing, is... Cross-border rules are different depending on marital status. Welcome to the show, Dr. David. <laughs> Thank you very much, Shane. I, David is just fine. All right. <laughs> well, you can call me doctor, though. I'm not one, but it'll make me feel better. Um, well, I really appreciate your time today. So you st- you founded this this group clearly after the, the shutdown had started, hey? Um, so all of our issues um, have become very apparent after the shutdown started. Right. And I think it's very important for us to talk very clearly on the words and terminology, only because as the pandemic gets a lot more people more aggravated, more scared, we want to make sure that people know that what we're advocating for is very specific and to deal with a very particular issue, not trying to create increased uh, COVID concerns or or, uh, decreased border security. Yeah, that makes sense. And marital status in this matter. So I appreciate for the stand to be accurate in our language so we don't mislead into some sort of pushback against responsible behavior. And I imagine as a doctor, that must be a little conflicting to think, hey, I want to see my honey, but at the same time, I can't (laughs) because my own moral compass says I've got to be responsible, plus there are other things going on. Absolutely. And um, I think there are also ways we can do so responsibly, and I'd like to get into those details soon. I just want to clarify one thing. While I am a physician, I do not speak for other physicians. I do not speak for any other large groups. This is solely for me as a personal citizen with uh, the advocacy group that I help co-found. Yeah. Oh, that's very good clarity. Thank you very much. Um, so <laughs> tell us, uh, well, no, it matters. I mean, that kind of clarity really matters, right? So in your particular case, uh, we will talk about the, the travel with, uh, with your common law partner and yes. what no, Alexandria uh, went through in just a few moments. Um, first, though, I want to yeah. talk about the cross-border stuff that you've learned from your group. So tell us what you've learned about cross-border travel as it has been and what it's yes. changed to be. Thank you for the question. So advocacy for family reunification at the Canadian border specifically advocates for two principles. Number one, expand the definition of essential travel to include family reunification. And number two, to expand the definition of family to include committed couples. Just as a refresher for your listeners, mid-March, March 18th, 
there was a order in council to create a travel restriction on foreign nationals to come into Canada. That meant you could only come in for essential reasons. Now, it was later expanded to the U.S. This meant that at the time, if you had a married partner, if, you're, if your husband or your wife or your married partner was outside of Canada and not a Canadian citizen, that person coming to see you in Canada, be with you during this horrendous time and challenging pandemic, was not considered essential. Now, on June the 8th, that changed. So luckily, whether or not it was due to us, whether or not we helped it happen earlier, whether or not it happened because of our advocacy, or if it was just going to happen anyway, it happened. So we're very grateful to the government of Canada for the first part. Family reunification is now allowed for a certain set of people who are considered family. This includes IRCC, um, sorry, uh, uh, Immigration Refugee Citizens of Canada, uh, designated common law, and married partners. However, this leaves a large number of people not considered family, and that's what we're referring to as committed partners. So the most basic example, a fiancé. A fiancé that you've uh, been engaged to, you want to get married to, that person cannot uh, come with you. Let's say that you have a long-term committed partner and you're pregnant in Canada, you still cannot reunite with your family member. Uh, this can also apply to LGBTQ uh, plus couples who, for various political, social, or personal reasons, are unable to get married. Or, as we see increasingly during this uh, new age of people, uh, where marriage may not be necessarily considered. Now, I want to clarify one thing. My partner and I, interestingly, we do not fit the criteria for the IRCC common law. We do, however, from what we as lay people read, we fit the CRA definition of common law. And that yeah. later becomes an issue. So, so that, right that now, the CRA definition, meaning that you file taxes as a common law couple? That we live together for no longer than three months break. So that was the challenge, but I know we'll talk about my story later. Uh, and just before you ask for the questions, I just want to clarify for all the listeners here, we are not asking for irresponsible opening of the border. We are very aware and we do believe the government is so sincere and genuine in the fighting of the COVID-19 pandemic. We are not asking for special treatment. We are just asking to be together. Yeah, and it's incredibly difficult, I imagine, to the non... There's two things that I hear here. Um, one is... The, what we use as the word marriage and wife uh, are also, or husband, also get tossed around loosely without definition. It crosses over, of course, from faith boundaries to civil boundaries and all those things. And we use the same words to describe multiples of things. So that's got to be incredibly confusing. So is common yeah. law. Now, the government loves taxes. So when the government, when you file taxes a certain way, you would think that that would be enough. But clearly, that's that's not it. And the pregnant part, you see partners that are having babies across the border and people um, meeting their new babies via video chat because they can't go um, that and leaving aside, like you said, being clear, leaving aside even the hospital and who can go to the hospital conversation. We're not mm -hmm. talking about that. We're just talking about the fact that even after you come home from the hospital, um, you can't go meet these people. What does it sounded like? We're going to take a break here in a second. Uh, David, what does it sounded like to uh, the, the members of your group, the heartache when they talk about not being able to be with their people, how hard is it on them? Very challenging. We have over a thousand members now in our three week existence. Um, and our internal polling show that about 75% of us, even after the June 8th announcement, which we do believe was in good faith, 75, at least 75% of us are still unable to reunite with our loved ones. Um, we do not believe that this was a conscious effort by the government to exclude us. We think that we were just lost in the technicalities, the emotional turmoil, the challenging, the pain, not being able to be with your partner during the world, feeling like it's so scary. That's something that we're missing, and we just want to be with our partners. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to try to explain it how I understand. She yeah. came back. You guys thought you had all the approvals. Everything was good to go. <laughs> Embassy folks gave you the thumbs up, the high five. Correct. She got yeah. to Toronto, and they spun her around and kicked her butt back out. That was horrific. But yes, essentially that much. Wow. Um, so the, the details become very important here. So forgive me if I sound uh, a little bit too pedantic. But uh, in short, uh, I was visiting um, Alexandria in Ireland mid-March. This was just as uh, PM Trudeau had announced the travel restriction on foreign nationals. So between the 15th and the 18th, when they were declaring the travel restriction on foreign nationals, my flights were canceled. I was panicking about getting home. We were worried about how COVID would work. So during this time, I reached out 
to the CBSA, the Canadian Border Services Agency, uh, as well as the local embassies. So that includes the Embassy to Canada in Dublin, who reached a counterpart, the Embassy to Canada in London, um, and saying, according to the CRA website, because we had never filed taxes before, we fit under common law definition of having lived together, but not having more than three months apart. We also gave them uh, some documents that we had. Uh, we, uh, we had a um, notarized letter from an Irish lawyer uh, saying that uh, our relationship is true. Um, we also had um, uh, just documents of like shared phone bills, uh, both in Ireland and in Canada. All this was sent. There was, there was no misleading. There was, uh, these are only true documents to all the relevant parties. We were told that after the 18th, we would likely be able to reunite given this documentation. I asked very specifically whether or not we could have some pre-authorization to get us through. I was able to get a flight back to Canada and was waiting in Canada for uh, Alexandria to come um, in mid-April, uh, right after my birthday. <laughs> um, so she tried flying in. First, the airlines, the CBSA, the embassies, and the IRCC all seemed to have, at the time, very different definitions of what could happen. In short, she was able to make it to Frankfurt, where she was then denied boarding to Toronto. We got an emergency letter, which was an exemption to the travel restriction from the Embassy to Canada in Berlin. At that point, she was allowed to board. Now, this paper very clearly says that she's able to make it to Canada, and the CBSA there will be able to decide, the border guard will be able to decide whether or not she's let in. There are some challenges in what happened at that point. We strongly feel that we were tr uh, that Alexandria was treated as if uh, she had lied to people, as if we had misled people. We were told that we didn't quite fit the criteria. We had all the documentation with us, and then she was sent home that day. Not only did that double her ink, uh, her COVID exposure, but she had a documented negative COVID test from her physician uh, from uh, from Ireland during this entire time. Now. The details of how it all worked out is very frustrating, but it showed how we felt the website information was not maybe up to date, how we were maybe not informed the best way. If we were told from the get-go that we could not come, that would be a different story. But because of the challenges, all the travel restriction, the evolving situation, a number of us, and I'm not unique in this respect, have fallen through the cracks and have been pulled apart from a, in an already difficult situation. I do not believe any agency actually actively was against our uniting, but I do believe a lot of us have fallen under the cracks in technicalities. Well, I just had a conversation yesterday with a restaurant owner that told me a very similar story. It had nothing to do with travel. It had to do with mm. they don't know who the boss is anymore because this person mm. is used to be, and then this person was, and this person says yes, then this person says no. And so it seems to be a common thread, not only in the case of travel. But David, as a man, you're there. I mean, this is your favorite person in the world, I'm assuming. <laughs> and you've, like yeah. you said, it's after your birthday. That's always a special time. And then oh. now all of a sudden you've gone through all of this and... I mean, this is your common law partner. She's there in Toronto. You know that she's basically on the other side of the wall, and um, metaphorically, and yeah. yet she has to turn away. Um, before we wrap up here quickly, how did, you know, that must have crushed you, dude. It was absolutely very painful. And it took um, both Alex and I um, about two months to really recuperate and figure out our path forward. After seeing so many other stories, um, and, and by the way, I don't, I don't think we're actually considered common law. We can just consider us long-term partner because according to IRCC, we are right. not common law. Right. Um, there are so many other people with this pain. We have a thousand members. We have a full official a petition at the House of Commons if you wish to support us. It's uh, e-petition 2657. Um, a lot of us are suffering. A lot of us are in pain. It was only after two months that we realized how large of a community we are that we want to advocate to just allow the expansion of the term family to include our committed partners. A piece of paper saying that we're married does not increase or decrease our COVID risk. We well, if there's evidence, together. right? If there's evidence, there's evidence that your lives are entangled, right? And so, I mean, yes. that that's one thing. And I, you know, I, I find it astounding that you can't use the evidence to somehow prove that. Thank you so much for the time, David. I appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. Um, there's actually a precedent in Denmark and the EU where they have a signed government form saying that if you've been together for more than six months, you guys are, uh, can reunite. But I'm so grateful for allowing your platform to share our story, Shane. Well, please keep us up to date. I appreciate that. Good luck and say hi to Alexandria for us. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Have a wonderful day. Wonderful. You too. Dr. David Edward Uipun. Uh, yeah, Alexandria's in Ireland. He's here. And I think of so many people. I think of people in Ottawa. I think of people in Niagara Falls and all through the peninsula and southern Ontario, south of London, down to Roy- towards Windsor. I mean, we broadcast this show in Winnipeg. That's not far. There's so many family members just across the border in Alberta. Down in southern Alberta, across into Idaho and Montana, plus you have Vancouver, down into Washington. I mean, so many families across the border. And the heartbreak when you see babies born. I can't imagine uh, the stress that that puts on people that are far apart inside Canada, let alone the people uh, that have their relationships outside of Canada, too. It's amazing. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.